0: Now, will you turn with me to Luke chapter 2? I'd have to say that this is the first Christmas season, first Advent season that I've really gone over the top in the incarnational studies that we've engaged in. I used to, uh, I don't think I did anything Sunday nights on the incarnation, but uh, or Sunday school for that matter, so I really feel like I've Plunged myself deep into Advent, which is great. So again, Luke chapter 2, very familiar passages, right, to us. So I'm going to read verse 1 through 20 of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. Advent joy. That's what I want to consider with you, Advent joy. Verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, at what the shepherds told them but Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. If you go to a a birthday celebration generally speaking you might sing happy birthday to whose ever birthday it is and that's that's kind of like the focal point of the gathering you know that time when you blow out the candles and cut a piece of cake after you've sung happy birthday and enjoy it that's the focal point you might spend time after that fellowshipping enjoying each other's company enjoying a piece of cake here and there and so you go on through the night and then uh, at the end of the the occasion you each depart to your own home But here you notice at the end that the shepherds, when they go back, after having seen this fulfillment of what the angels told them, that they glorified God and praised God for all that they had seen and heard. We have many privileges, you know, as Christians this Advent season to remind ourselves again and again of the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings freshly, I think, over and over again to us the... the the facts and the the memory of, of what it cost for God to send His Son into the world. In fact, you read here in this passage that the shepherds, after Mary in the opening verses had brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and then laid him in a manger, you read later on that the angel actually says to the shepherds, this will be the sign that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. And I've often wondered, well, You know, how did that come about? Is the sign determined by God ahead of time? And Mary, of course, just does that. Uh, And then the angels declare after that has actually happened in the first opening verses that you will find the baby, this will be a sign. Or is this just something that Mary did this and the angel then says, look, if you want to find the child, this is how you find the child. I'm more inclined to see the miraculous that God is behind everything right God is behind everything in my life God is behind everything in your life in fact the occurrence the coming about of the birth of Jesus is in the hands of God completely, in the purpose of God in the plan of God and this is what we want to consider at the heart of what Isaac Watts wrote, which we sang tonight that carol Joy to the World are these two lines Joy to the world the Lord is come Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. That's the opening first line and the opening second line. There is joy because of what has happened. The Lord has come. The Savior reigns. That's what Isaac Watts tells us. Joy to the world, joy to the earth. The Lord has come. The Savior reigns. I think that's great theology. I think that's something to think about and to meditate on in those two stanzas. But Mr. Watts... Good theologian that he was is not finished with what he has to say in his carol because he gives an expected response to the statements, joy to the world, the Lord has come, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Because he says, what he really posits is, is this, if the Lord has come, then what? If the Savior reigns, then what? What? What are the consequences of saying the Lord is come or the Savior reigns? And you notice what he says, for example, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let earth receive her king. Or joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. It's great theology that, really is, you know. Because what he's telling us is, first of all, we make an acknowledgement, right, Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. We make a reception of that. We acknowledge that. But secondly, there's an announcement that's made, right? Let men their songs employ. There's a proclamation. So there's an acknowledgement and there's an announcement or proclaiming from that. So what you have here is the truth is presented to us and the truth is proclaimed. That's what Isaac Watts is saying. But he's not finished because he says that all truth has implications and so the truth is to be heard and the truth is to be delivered the truth is to be told and so on I mean it's like preaching really because preaching is proclamation that is presented to minds and to hearts but that's not all that there is to preaching because preaching doesn't end there preaching presses home an application to the conscience right so mind and heart And conscience working together, the Holy Spirit takes the Word, takes truth, presents it to us powerfully, and we feel the impact of it in our lives, on our hearts, in our minds, and we change. At least that's the goal of preaching. That's the work of the Spirit. So Mr. Watts says, because he knows that, he says, we should repeat the sound in joy. Okay? We should repeat the sounding joy. It's not enough to just deliver this once and forget about it as if I've de- delivered the news and that's the end of the news. No, repeat the sounding joy, meaning we go on preaching, we go on proclaiming, we go on announcing. We keep on saying this. And Mr. Watts still not finished. He says, you do it as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, we must proclaim, he says, the wonders of his love. You see, there's much more to singing hymns than just, well, okay, I kind of know this tune, so I'll sing this hymn. No, there's, there's thought behind the composition of the words, right? It's good poetry that we sing. When we speak about our Lord's advent, By that we mean the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ, His incarnation. I think most people remain ignorant of the fact that that the incarnation is at the heart of the gospel. If you have no incarnation, you have no cross, right? You have no resurrection. You have no Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. The incarnation is is central to what we confess. It's not the only thing we confess, of course there are also fundamental truths associated with the life of Jesus, His sinlessness, His death on the cross, His burial, His resurrection, His exaltation, His coming again, right? Those are the great truths that we acknowledge and confess, but but right at the base of all of that is the advent, the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus, and from that coming, until He comes again, all of these other truths are associated with our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I think a lot of people have never really considered those kinds of things, you know. The gospel does not exist without the Savior. In fact, you cannot have a gospel and no Savior. In fact, the good news here is all about a Savior in Luke chapter 2. And the gospel, of course, in Luke chapter 2, is not something new for us. Yeah, I think this is another mistake we make. It's as if, well, nobody knew about this, this uh, coming into the world of a promised deliverer. I mean, this is totally something brand new. No, it's not something new. It's the whole Old Testament. is filled with it. That's the whole purpose of the Old Testament, right? So, the message of the angel is not some new revelation that you should be surprised at, that I should be surprised at. No, what the angel is giving to us is simply everything the Old Testament has foretold, has promised. This is the wonder and the beauty and the glory of Advent, of Christmas, of incarnation. It's not just a, oh, you know, I, I just thought about this as if God says to himself, I should send my son. No, 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 this is the decree of God that has been established from eternity past that comes to fruition in time, but many centuries after the creation of the world and the promises and the types and the shadows that we read of in the Old Testament. And our Old Testament, by the way, is not simply or merely ancient history, though it is loaded with ancient history, but it's not ancient history for history's sake. That's not what it is, right? No, the Old Testament is really the foundation for our faith. The groundwork that is laid for everything that is to come afterwards. Meaning, the coming into the world of the Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fulfilling of the Old Testament, and I mean when you look at your Bible, here you've got Old Testament, here you've got New Testament. New Testament like this, Old Testament is like that. The New Testament, you read here in Luke chapter 2, right, in, in these opening chapters here, is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Everything. And the Old Testament takes bypaths. You know, I mean, it goes this way and it goes that way. And you read about all kinds of things in the life of Israel and the life of people. You read about good people and you read about bad people and you see you see their lives given in detail and sometimes fleeting statements or made of people and god's putting all of that together he's weaving all of that together so that he arrives at the first century when the time was right right all of that weaving together in the sovereign purposes and providences of god to arrive at god's determined time god's determined appointed time so the fulfilling of the Old Testament Scriptures here, for example, in Luke chapter 2, or anything that we find in the the Gospels is the fulfilling of that Old Testament. What's the Old Testament about? Well, essentially it's about a Redeemer coming, right? The promise of a Redeemer. That's necessary because all of humanity, not some of humanity, but all of us, every single person who has ever lived, is sinful or to put it another way, is designated as sinner. Because sinful implies, well, you might do this sinful act here, or maybe a sinful act there, but sinner implies what you are by nature. Not just what you are by practice. By practice you commit this sin, that sin, this sin, that sin. But by nature, this is what defines you. This is who we are. So God is not sending the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to bring about some sort of spiritual restoration or recovery on on a basic level. No, he's talking about a deep-seated change which we call regeneration. New birth, brand new, everything brand new, right? Everything turned around, brand, brand new. That's because the Old Testament promises a Redeemer to us. Because we're sinful and need, desperately in need of saving, of a Savior. Jonathan Edwards was right when he did preach his famous sermon, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Angry because of sinners. Angry because they're sinful against Him, and willful, and violent against Him, and hate Him. And so it's right to call ourselves sinners, and not just merely sinful people, but sinners in the real meaning of the word. But the shocking thing about the anger of God is that it is pacified by the Redeemer. Pacified completely by the One promised in the Old Testament, foretold in the Old Old Testament, and prophesied in the Old Testament, who as we discover here in Luke chapter 2, is the promised one. Everything the Old Testament said about Him is coming to fruition right here, fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. When you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament really lifts up your expectations or raises your anticipation, because you get the idea when you read your Old Testament, this is not complete. Right, this is giving me a history of God's people and God's covenant dealings with humanity and people and so on. But the, what is it? Where is it going? And you get, these, you get these glimpses, these statements that promise a deliverer. So in your mind, as you work your way through from Genesis to Malachi, you are, this, this expectation has been developing and building in you, and it, it's still not satisfied when you finish Malachi chapter 4. Still not finished. In fact, Malachi chapter 4 ends on anticipation and expectation. The coming of John the Baptist and the spirit and the power of Elijah. Turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and children to their fathers and so on. The Old Testament is like a lamp shining in a dark tunnel but at the far end of the tunnel. You see the light. There it is in the distance. When you walk through the tunnel and you get to the light, the light is suddenly right up front in your face, right? That's the New Testament. Suddenly, God invades humanity. God descends, as it were, and reveals himself powerfully when he's been silent for 400 years. People have lost hope, perhaps, the vast majority of them. But here it is, right in your face. That's what the angel does, verse 10. You see what he says? Fear not. These are the shepherds, right? You're terrified because the glory of God has been revealed to them. He He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, why should these shepherds not be afraid? Because that's what he says. Fear not, right? Don't be afraid. Well, he tells them why not. I'm bringing you good news that's what he says, euangelizo this is the word good news here means to announce to pronounce to declare good news or to declare gospel gospel is another word for good news right fear not because what I am going to tell you is good news has anybody ever been afraid of good news what do you want first the bad news or the good news right and people make a decision, well, I'll, usually I'll take the bad news, okay? And you don't want to hear the bad news. Because you know, always the good news is better than the bad news. Right? So you don't want to hear the bad news, but if you're forced to make a decision, you'd, I'll get the bad news, then I'll get the good news afterwards. Because maybe that'll mitigate the bad. The angel doesn't say, now look, i got bad news for you guys because you're sinful okay but I got good news there's a savior no he doesn't talk about the bad news he just says I'm bringing you good news about a savior he doesn't say that they're sinful he doesn't reveal any of that he just says I'm bringing you good news good news so he's giving them gospel news that's what the angel is saying right now doesn't it seem kind of redundant to you because it does seem redundant to me to say good news of great joy right? kind of you know because good news is joyful news it's good news People rejoice at good news. We read our newspapers, well, maybe not newspapers anymore, but uh, our online news, streams, whatever they are, right? We read the headlines, bad news, right? Every single thing is bad news, right? Uh, If only I could get a little good news today. One of the pop singers way back sang about just a little good news today goes a long way we're desperate for good news in our world it seems like bad news is increasing all the time right so in the first century here are here are shepherds just go about their business perhaps they've lost sight of the old testament promises because where is god he's quiet he's silent he doesn't seem to be even in my life he doesn't seem to have oh, you know we've got these this hope and but anyway let me look after my sheep Heaven opens. Angels sing, right? And they get this message from the angel. He's giving them gospel news. He's giving them good news, which the angel says is of great joy. And all good news, as I said, is a source of joy to us. The New Testament. I, you know, I'm I'm partial to both the old and the new. In case you haven't noticed. Both of them are good news, aren't they? Right? But the, but the New Testament is the sealing, the fulfilling, the fruition of the promises. And that really is, you know, when you, when you receive promises, 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 you know that the promises are good, yes, they're good, they're good, but nothing quite matches the fulfilling of the promise. When it actually takes place, then it's like, yes, yes. That's exactly what we have Revealed to you, he's really giving the shepherds the why of the good news, he's giving them the great joy of the good news, which is verse 11. Verse 11 says, For unto you, or because for you, is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the good news, that's the joyful news, right? Today, not tomorrow. I mean, this is this has never happened for For all the centuries, and suddenly now there's this fulfilling of the word and the promises of God. Literally, today, he's already born. He's born in Bethlehem. That's joyful news. This is gospel news. This is good news, right? This is Advent news. You notice the angel doesn't say, I have new news for you. No, it's not new news. Now, this is the fulfilling of old news, right? In reality, it is this old news because behind the pronouncement of what the angel says here is the entire Old Testament scripture, all the Old Testament. This is why Jesus, after his resurrection, can tell his disciples about everything in the Old Testament written of me. Psalms, Moses, and on and on he goes, prophets and so on. I've always loved the Old Testament. You know, there's something about it. Isn't there? There's something something beautiful about the Old Testament scriptures. One of the things that preachers often have difficulty with is preaching the Old Testament. I've experienced that myself to expound the Old Testament. And I think the difficulty with expounding the Old Testament is trying to fit Jesus in. I don't have any problem fitting Jesus in the New Testament. Because that's the New Testament. I do believe that that's the Old Testament as well. Jesus is the Old Testament. But preachers especially have a very great difficulty trying to figure out how Jesus is actually in the Old Testament. And on many occasions I think preachers become demoralized in their trying to come to grips with what the Old Testament is saying. So what they content themselves with doing is moralizing the Old Testament. Reducing it to a bunch of do's and don'ts maybe or motivational pep talks out of the Old Testament. Let me give you a classic illustration. I think you'll all recognize it, right? David and Goliath. David and Goliath is often said to be about slaying the giants in your life, right? I mean, that's nothing but some psychological, motivational, emotional Whatever. Okay. I don't even have words for that. But that's not David and Goliath. (laughs) David and Goliath is not about slaying the giants or overcoming the difficulties in your life. Okay. That's moralizing the Old Testament. That's finding difficulty expressing where Jesus is. Where is Jesus in David and Goliath? That's the question, right? Well, let me tell you. Because when you see it, it's quite beautiful. David and Goliath is about a shepherd who goes forth to war on behalf of his people on behalf of God to destroy the enemy of God's people and the enemy of God. That's what the shepherd does. That's David, right? But there's another shepherd that we think about who has gone forth to war on behalf of his people sent by God to save them and to deliver them and he destroys Goliath the enemy of God's people the devil Satan himself that's Jesus in a little shepherd boy stooping down to pick up five smooth pebbles put them in his pouch and march to war That's Jesus going to war for me, for you, to save you, to deliver his people from their enemy. That's David and Goliath. Not about overcoming the difficulties I have. This is the difficulty preachers have throughout the Old Testament. How to to put Jesus back in the Old Testament when it's all about Jesus to start with. There is a great hymn. It's not in our hymnals. It's not in the black hymnal, it's not in the blue hymnal, to our shame. It's the hymn called, The Son of God Goes Forth to War. It's a beautiful hymn, it goes like this. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? Who best can drink his cup of woe, triumphant over pain? Who best bears the cross below? He who follows in his train. You see, when the Son of God goes forth to war, he goes forth to war on behalf of his people. Do we follow in his train? Because that's why Jesus came. He went forth to war. This little manger scene as... As beautiful as it is, and the angel even says, it's the sign you must look for, you shepherds. Is on this level, right? The sign is just basic level. A child in swaddling cloths laid in a manger. But this is the Son of God going forth to war on behalf of His people, on behalf of Mary, on behalf of Joseph, on behalf of shepherds. As the angel says, good news, for all the people. The Son of God coming. That seems to me joyful good news. Right? That's why Jesus came. It's my December. It's why um, I like to be perky in December. I like to be upbeat in December. How could you not be, Right? Because we fix all of our hopes on the one who came for us you know we have one Bible with one gospel we don't have two gospels or three gospels we don't have two Bibles we have one gospel but we all recognize we have an Old Testament and we have a New Testament two separate testaments right you like the word testament you should like the word testament It just means to bear witness to something the Old Testament is bearing witness and the New Testament is bearing witness they're testaments But both that Old and that New Testament that you have in your hands in one book, in one Bible, is one message. And more importantly, theologically and biblically, it is one canon of Scripture. It's not two canons of Scripture, it's one canon of Scripture. Old and new, one book, God's Word to us so that we don't diminish the Old Testament as if it belongs to another sort and elevate the New Testament as if it belongs to a superior kind. No, we have one Bible, one message, one story, one good news, one gospel about Christ who came to save us, to deliver us. And When you separate the old from the new, or separate the new from the old, that has dangerous consequences, right? Not least of which is that you might say the Old Testament doesn't really matter. And I've heard good people, good Christians say that. The Old Testament, you know, I struggle with the Old Testament. I have difficulty with the Old Testament. I have difficulty with God killing all those Canaanites and babies and all of that. I struggle with the Old Testament. No, I don't want the Old Testament. I want the New Testament. I want the love of Jesus. Good people say that. Good Christians say that. I can understand their difficulty, but their difficulty is because they are separating. And they're not seeing that this is one story. This is one covenant-keeping God who is working out His purposes from Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22.21, all the way to the end. So verse 10 and verse 11 here, right, they really are the culmination of Genesis three fifteen, and I mean it can be easy to lose sight of that, right? Yeah, you, know, you get taken up in the Christmas story, and you know I dare say there'll be churches that will have Christmas programs, magnificent Christmas programs. That c- that take a lot of time and effort and cost to produce. You can lose sight of the Son of God going forth to war in that. Because that makes it feel good, makes it feel nice. Frankly, there's nothing nice about being put in a manger. (laughs) You know, maybe they'd have cleaned it out as best they could. That's where they put Jesus. What ignominy, what humiliation, what shame when the Son of God went forth out of heaven to wage war. That was His reception. And even the text says, no room in the inn. He owns the inn, doesn't he? He owns the innkeeper. He owns everything. But he's in the back somewhere, out of sight where the animals are. Every part of your Bible, every single passage in your Bible has a Christian significance, has a Christ-centered connection, is overflowing with Christ. We must guard our ways in these evil days. We must love this Bible. We must love this Word. We must treasure it. We must read it more. We must fill our minds and our hearts with it. can't get enough of it. This is God's message to me, to you. We must take it in, all of it. When I've done that, start again and take it in again and again and again. And I think perhaps that's why I've tried to emphasize this Advent season a lot about the Advent. When I read my Bible, I must read all of my Bible. Every part of it. What the angel is referring to is out of the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's what the angel is referring And he's beautifully clear, you know. There's no mixed message. I bring you good news of great joy. Simple, succinct, powerful, direct tells you exactly what he tells the shepherds exactly what he's giving them he says, I'm giving you good news and it's joyful news and this is what it is today today now right now is born for you shepherds to give you hope to give you joy right now is born for you in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord that's beautiful isn't it it's powerful Let me give you three things that are here in the text about the good news. Number one, there is content. Content. Number two, there is consequence. Number three, there is comfort. Maybe conclusion or consolation. This is like a newsroom, okay? I've always had a fascination with journalists and newsrooms and the news I like it I like the idea of gathering information putting it down and then writing it out and sending it out so people read it and can understand something they know nothing about right so here's content I, I mean if you went to an editor of a newspaper and says look I got the story and he says okay well, what is the story and you say well you know I'm worried I'm not sure exactly of the details He said, but what's the content about what's it about well I, I'm not I can't really sure he tell you go away In fact, you're fired. Right? (laughs) Whatever it is. I want content. I want solid, rich, good content. Right? Isn't that like when you read a good story today? What do you want? You want content. You don't want fluff. You don't want mixed messages. You want content. You want real content. So let me give you the content, the angel says. Christ, the Lord. That's what this is about. Christ, the Lord. But there are consequences to Christ the Lord. A Savior is born. Christ who is the Lord is born a Savior. The content is Christ and all that is Christ. The consequence of who he is, is that he has come. The Savior has been born. And the comfort, the conclusion to all of that, for to you is born this day. To you, shepherd. Angel says, That's my good news. That's my content. That's my consequence. That's my, my consolation, my comfort to you. You know what that is? That's Advent Theology 101. That's all it is. Right? That's what verse 10 and 11 are. just basic Advent Theology. That the one born in Bethlehem City is none other than Christ, who is Lord. That the Messiah you've been anticipating, hoping for, longing for, he is Lord. And I'm not, the angel is saying, he's not giving them a a, a lesser God or a watered down version of God. He is saying, here is God. Here is the Lord come among you. Here is God. Emmanuel. That's who's born in Bethlehem. That's who's in David city. Right now, he says, Christ, who is Lord, but he's also Savior. He's come with a purpose. He's come to save his people. That's the gospel. The gospel is about Christ as Lord and Savior. We often talk about that, right? You know how uh, easy believism is, makes the division between Christ as Savior, and then Christ as Lord. As if you're going to have Christ as Savior, but not Christ as Lord. No, you can't do that. When you take Christ's savior as Savior, you take Him as Lord. All that He is. When you take Him as Lord, you take Him as Savior. That's who He is. He is the Lord and Savior. Not this, at one moment, and then you have a crisis, and you make Him Lord. Whoever made Jesus Lord? No one. I mean, that's almost blasphemous. We don't make Jesus Lord of anything. Jesus is Lord of everything. Right? So the Savior speaks to us about, well, why did he come? He came to save. How is he going to do that? He's going to die. This speaks about his death. That he is Lord speaks about, yes, it's true he was Lord in eternity past. But when you look at the baby in the manger, you... You have to wait for His resurrection and ascension and exaltation and the declaration by the Father, this is my beloved Son. This is God the Son. It's the same person, Savior and Lord. There's no dividing in Christ, right? No divide in Jesus. This is the promised one. For centuries, for millennia, Israel has had this anticipation, this hope. They've clung to their hope of a promised Savior from Genesis 3 and verse 15. And the Savior, who was the Son, becomes flesh. Right there, that night, is born in David's city. Without ceasing for one single moment in the manger to be the Son of God, He went forth to war. And there He is. It's obvious That God's purposes and God's plan, when you read your Bible, include, don't they, the birth of the Savior? They have to. That's His purpose. It's mysterious, the incarnation, isn't it? How can you conceive in your mind of the conception in the womb of Mary? The answer is only by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. No explanation. Because it's beyond us. You could never comprehend how it did, how it happened. But God did it. Because He can do that. The Old Testament promises us a virgin birth, right? Isaiah 7, verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear forth a son, which is fulfilled, right? In Luke chapter 1, by the way, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 27. Verse 27 says that the angel Gabriel went to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. So there it is, right? And if you look at verse 31, the angel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And that, of course, when Mary questions, well, how will that happen? The power of the, over, the Most High will overshadow you. Because that which is to be born in you is most holy, is holy. The Son of God. The Son of God. So the birth of the Savior, a unique birth, right? Right? virgin birth, unique birth, for someone who has a unique identity, who is Lord and who is Saviour, who is the eternal Word and the eternal Son who becomes man, becomes flesh. The promised Saviour. A unique person. God-man. God-man. It's better to say God-man than God and man as if we somehow divide. No, God-man. One person our Lord Jesus Christ. This Savior, he has a unique purpose, right? It is to save his people from their sins. It is to save them. That's this singular purpose. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.23. So Jesus is not one Savior among many, right? There are many Saviors out there, and still people are looking for a Savior today, right? No, Jesus is not one saviour among many. He is the saviour, the saviour, the savior, and therefore the only saviour that there is. I love what Calvin says about this. Calvin asks the question, he says, Who could have done this? Who could have come up with this? Had not the selfsame Son of God become the Son of Man? Who could take what was ours so as to give us what was His? He took our flesh to give us his life, real life. So the Son of God, remarkably, beautifully, has this incredible filial relationship with the Father, right? Father and Son. It's the perfect filial relationship that exists. But not only that, with the people of God, with his people, the Father's people and the Son's people, they're the same people, their people, God's people. God the Father's and God the Son. You notice how verse 11 puts it, for unto you, yes, you shepherds, unto you shepherds, despised the lowest class of humanity out there amongst the Israelites, looked down upon, disregarded, not cared for, not important. You shepherds, to you is born this day. Not distinguishing, but just simply including the very least, at least in Israel's eyes, these shepherds yes, the shepherds but also, verse 10, all the people this is good news of great joy for all for every one of us, right? the the good news extends to all I mean, what would be the point of having good news and keeping it just to yourself? the good news is extended to all it's news about salvation, isn't it? it's Advent news I suppose if you read the Bethlehem Times right, the following morning or something it might say Advent news shepherds reporting from the field right advent savior has come i don't know you can see it in my mind this is good news right this is advent news it's the best news in the world it's good news of great joy now just go back to chapter 1 of luke and look at verse 14 Poor old Zechariah, he's laboring away there, he's such a good man, he's a righteous man, he's a blameless man. He's working at his priestly duties in the temple. And Gabriel, angel just appears, right? And he says in verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Don't you love how they introduce themselves? Fear not! (laughs) Don't be afraid, right? Because the first thing you would be of, we've seen an angel is terrified, right? Which, by the way, Zechariah was. Don't be afraid, he says. Uh, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John now we know because Zechariah does not believe the message that he ceased his prayers he hasn't prayed for a long time he's an old man now he's given up on praying but the angel says God has heard your praying doesn't matter when you pray God hears it God heard him Right? Now, God has heard your prayers, Zechariah. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. Look at verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will will rejoice at his birth. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This is the birth of John the Baptist, right? Now, as much as there is a joy, a father's joy... In having a son or having a daughter, as much as there is that joy, I don't think that's what this joy is here. Yes, I'm sure Zechariah would experience great joy because of the birth of his son, but that's not what the angel really is meaning here. He doesn't mean the neighbors are going to celebrate with you, though they did celebrate, right? He doesn't mean that joy, that rejoicing. No, it's more than a personal feeling that he's talking about here or just a happy get-together that we're so happy that this has finally happened. It's much deeper than that. No, in the context of this incredible news that God was sending a messenger before Messiah, this really is eschatological news. This is world news. Now, we don't have, I think, a newspaper anywhere in the world that says World News, except as a subtitle by whatever news station it is. This is the U.S. news, the world news. But imagine, world news. We own the news in the world. This is the world news. This is the only world news that applies to all the world at one time. This is eschatological news. Because this has been foreordained by God, has been worked on and worked out and fleshed out, and now Jesus has come and continues to eternity. It's eschatological, this news, that Jesus has come into the world. Signifies the arrival of the Messianic age. That's why both Simeon and Anna speak in those eschatological terms, waiting for the consolation or the redemption of Jerusalem. The fulfilling... Of God's purpose and God's plans. The fulfilling of all these prophecies and promises that God has made. When Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, they were filled with joy, the Bible says, but couldn't quite believe it, right? Filled with joy. When you get to the end of the book of Luke 24, and they're standing there gazing up, they return to Jerusalem with the same words, great Joy, great joy. Jesus is gone. Now, remember, they were sorrowful, right? They didn't, they didn't Jesus told them, I'm going away and all of this, and none of you is going to betray me. They were absolutely mm. sorrowful. But now that Jesus goes up into heaven, they are rejoicing. Can you imagine? You'd be, I might be sad. I've lost Jesus. But no, the Spirit is coming. The Spirit is coming. The reason people will rejoice at the birth of John the Baptist, for example, is because of his message. Not because of who he is, and he was unique. He was an incredible prophet, right? He stood out, a righteous, godly man. He rebuked Herod for his, his sinfulness with Herodias. He had no fear. He's like Elijah, the prophet, right? Right? But the thing about John the Baptist is that it was his message that was the issue. What was his message? One's coming after me who's greater than me. I'm not worthy to undo the sandal straps on his feet. He's going to burn the chaff, his fire. I, he's going to baptize with the Spirit. I baptize with water, but his baptism is far deeper, far greater. One is coming after me is what his message was. He's far greater than I. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. He's the hope of all Israel. That's the joyful news. That's the joyful news. You see, the joyful news that John the Baptist is giving is not about the deliverance from an oppressive, earthly, worldly government regime like Rome. That's not the joyful news. That's not messianic news. I haven't come, Jesus says, to do that. I haven't come to deliver you from Rome. Oh. No, I've come to deliver you from yourself, from your sins, right? I mean, if, if Jesus came to deliver Israel from Rome, that would be this would be some message of liberation theology that the angels giving here. This is the good news of great joy. Liberation. But Jesus didn't come to liberate us physically, though it speaks of the blind seeing and the deaf hearing, which are the miraculous signs Jesus did, but they portray the deeper work of spiritual blind seeing and spiritually deaf hearing and spiritually dead being raised to life again. That's good news. Really good news that the Bible gives me about a Savior, about a Lord. He's coming into this world. He's not on a white horse. Jesus doesn't come on a white horse, right? With the armies of heaven following, maybe one day I pray soon that he will do that. Now, what do we find? Verse 12 says, The sign is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Nothing significant. Nothing great. Lying in a manger. Helpless. Humiliated, really, right? Hardly an auspicious start to delivering your people. Hardly an auspicious start to be found like that. Surely, they should have the best room in the inn. Right, in the best inn, in, Jeru- in Bethlehem, the best, the five-star treatment. No, no, this is not even one star. In fact, what this is, is Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and born in the likeness of men. That's humiliation. There's no other word to describe it. And Paul, in this remarkable hymn in Philippians 2, he says, for instance, in verse 7, he emptied himself. It's the great kenosis theory, right? He emptied himself. Also, verse 8, he humbled himself. But then when you read connecting, there's two other lines that are are surrounding that. He takes the form of a servant and he is found in the form of a man. The word form, morphe. Same word that's used there. So he takes to himself the form of a servant. What servant delivers people? A servant serves people. But this servant, he comes to redeem He comes to save. And you're not going to look for this servant as as a redeemer. In fact, Jesus for 30 years is obscure until he comes forth, right? With John the Baptist saying, behold, one is coming. He's here right now. You see, the culmination of Philippians chapter 2, of course, is that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, in the form of a servant, in the form of a man. The good news of great joy is beyond the birth of the Lord Jesus to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and beyond resurrection, exaltation and so on as Philippians 2 talks about. Salvation is achieved not by the birth in Bethlehem, right? But by the death at Calvary, at the cross. So the point of the good news is really not Bethlehem, that's the start, but what He will do, Saviour. Save his people. This is joyful news. That's why Peter can put it like this. Though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Right? Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. That's what Peter says. That's the good news. You're rejoicing at, right? What do the angels do with this good news? Verse 14. Heaven erupts. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth with those whom he is well pleased what do the shepherds do verse 20 they glorified god and praised him for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them so dear beloved we remember advent we do it's december this is what we do but that's not really the point just to remember advent the real point is have we received the savior have we received the lord the one who came because that's the good news, that is joyful news. Have I received the Saviour that was born for me? Like it was born? He was born for the shepherds. So Jesus brings to us all that He is, right? His grace, His mercy, His peace, His love, His forgiveness, His presence, His joy. Because that's the content of the Gospel. It has consequences for your life and for mine. And it really is the greatest message of all. and brings us comfort and hope in a dark world. Thank God for Advent and the joy of it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for these few thoughts on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We try to fill our hearts and minds with the greatness and the wonder and the glory of the good news hardly done it justice thank you for sending your son oh help us to believe father to be filled with great joy at this delivering message this saving word from heaven that Jesus came to die for us so thank you for that thank you for the Advent message fill us with your joy we pray and now thank you father for this day the Lord's day for all that it means to us for the for the good things the fellowship we've enjoyed the the word that we've heard for the uh, the opportunity to praise you and now we pray that you'd send us into the world to our work to our daily activities filled with this joy that we might turn the world upside down use us we pray for your glory now go with us as we part and thank you for all things in jesus name we pray amen may the lord